Well, today uh, we're back from a little Christmas break uh, last Sunday to continue working through the gospel according to John in this series called Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And we'll be working in John 11 and 12. So if you'd like to start going there on your Bible or Bible app, go for it if you'd like. But today we're considering in this interaction between Jesus and Mary of Bethany, a beautiful picture of true and proper worship. And as we begin, I just want to ask you a question. What comes into your mind when you think about worship? What do you think of? What do you picture when you think about worship? When I was a kid, if you asked me that question, I I think that I would have uh, thought of going to church. And when I was a little kid, I I clearly remember like kneeling and coloring on the chair, not on the chair, but on a coloring page on the chair, maybe a little on the chair when I was younger. Anyways, that's what I would have thought of. And maybe that's what you think of, 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 of gathering together for worship. But is worship limited to Sunday morning or whenever there's a worship service? I think many people, when they think of worship, they think of worship music. And certainly, biblical worship includes singing songs of praise to God. I mean, we have the book of Psalms in the Bible, and, and the book of Psalms is a hymnal. It's a songbook that has been used for thousands of years by the people of God in the worship of God. But worship isn't just limited to music, right? Any more than it's limited to a particular time or place. So what is worship? Well, the answer is so clearly seen in our story today when Mary of Bethany, a friend of Jesus, responds to Jesus with extravagant honor. And so if you have a Bible or Bible app, please take it and open it to John chapter 11 starting with verse 45, and we'll read through this together and unpack it as we go. John 11, starting with verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Okay, let's pause here briefly. So if you've been with us for the past few months, we've seen similar reactions throughout this whole middle section of John's gospel uh, where people are divided over who Jesus is. It's not really that much different than our world today, is it? 
Well, back then, some people responded in faith. As John says in verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, meaning how he raised Lazarus, her brother, from the dead, they believed in him. They put their faith and trust in him. At the same time, other people opposed him, including the Jews who ran off to tell the Pharisees what had happened and where Jesus was, and including those in positions of power like Caiaphas, the chief priest. Now, it's interesting to me that Caiaphas made this prophecy about Jesus, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and also the scattered children of God, and that he would bring them together and make them one. Now, for Christians today, Christians on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we believe this actually happened. This actually came to pass. This prophecy from Caiaphas was true. But Caiaphas wasn't a believer in Jesus, though it seems that the Lord spoke through him. He interpreted this prophecy completely wrong. He only used a political lens. He thought that this prophecy meant that Jesus would unite the Jewish people in rebellion against the mighty Roman Empire, and they'd essentially be squashed like a bug. Then, as they say, the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And, and in this, I think we're meant to hear a little emphasis, right? Our temple, our nation. In other words, if we, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the most important religious and political leadership body in the nation, if the Sanhedrin were to allow Jesus to continue his ministry and he incites a rebellion against Rome, we'll likely lose our power and our authority. So they decided not to do what was right, but what was politically expedient. So, from that day on, John reports, they plotted to take the life of Jesus. The hour of Jesus, as we've seen throughout John's gospel, was drawing near. Let's continue with verse 55. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. 
You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Let's pause one more time here. So in Mark's account of this story, he records Jesus saying, Mary has done a beautiful thing to me. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So today, friends, because of what Mary did for Jesus, we're telling her story in memory of her. But what exactly did she do? This is a strange story. Can we acknowledge that? <laughs> the wiping of the feet with the hair. This, the Bible can be odd sometimes, right? Well, let's dig into this a bit. So John says that this all took place six days before the Passover. Now this means that this happened one week before the cross. For John... In his gospel, everything slows down. Time slows way down the closer we get to the cross. So if you've been paying attention so far, chapters 1 through 11 in John's gospel cover about two and a half years in the life and ministry of Jesus. And then from here in chapter 12 through chapter 20, almost the end of the gospel, it, it only focuses on one week of time in the life of Jesus. Of course, if it's true, as John certainly believes and as we believe today, this would prove to be the most important week in the history of the world since the week of creation. But here, one week before the cross, there's a dinner held in Jesus' honor. And from Matthew and Mark's accounts, we learn that it was held at the house of a man named Simon the leper. How'd you like that nickname, huh? Simon, David the leper. I'm like, cool. <laughs> Thanks for that. Simon, uh, who was Simon? Possibly uh, the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, possibly he was just another person who had healed, that had been healed by Jesus, probably of leprosy. Can we guess? Okay. We don't really know. At any rate, Simon hosted. He opened his home to Jesus and all these people as some of you did this past week. Maybe some of you will continue to do. Uh, and Martha served. So Martha's busy in the kitchen. She's serving people. She's extending hospitality. She's a faithful lady. Lazarus was reclining at the table, probably just glad to be there, back from the dead, right? <laughs> With Jesus. And so this, this party, it could have been the scene from Luke chapter 10 where Luke says that Martha was doing all this work and she complained to Jesus that Mary, her deadbeat sister, was just sitting around not helping and she was sitting at his feet and Jesus was like, calm down, Martha, I love you too. Um, it, it could have been the same dinner. It could have been another dinner. We're not exactly sure. Um, we do know that Jesus spent quite a bit of time with these three. These were dear friends of his and their home became like his home base uh, for this last week of his life before the cross. But then, in the middle of dinner, Mary comes out with a jar of very expensive perfume. And I imagine this, the buzz of, of the dinner conversation started to quiet down and then slowly turned into shock as people realized what Mary was going to do. She broke open this alabaster jar and 
poured all of it out on Jesus. Now, Matthew and Mark say she anointed his head with this fragrant oil. John says she anointed his feet and then wiped them with her hair. (laughs) Jesus said she anointed my body. I think we're led to believe that she just drenched the man in perfume. John adds this detail. The whole house was filled with the fragrance. Now, back then... It was not common for, for a woman like Mary to let her hair down as she would have done in mixed company here. But clearly, Mary doesn't care what anyone else thinks. She has an audience of one. She only cares that Jesus knows how much she cares for him and appreciates what he has done for her. Judas assesses the value of the perfume at something like sixty dollars to $70,000 in modern money, which makes this just an extravagant gift, truly. Judas objected to all this, saying, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? But we're told Judas wasn't really upset because of some concern for the poor. Judas was the treasurer, so if the perfume was sold, he would have the money. He was the keeper of the money bag, and and he held the offerings of the people who gave to support the ministry of Jesus. But John says that Judas was a thief. He helped himself to whatever he wanted from the donations to the ministry. Can you imagine stealing from Jesus? Well, ironically, in Mary's offering, which Jesus had said was beautiful, Judas could only see that she had stolen an opportunity from him to steal more from Jesus. He was upset. Tragically, later that week, Judas would betray Jesus for only 30 pieces of silver. If pride was the ruin of the devil, greed, it seems, was the ruin of Judas. Modern Western people, beware of the sin of greed. It's an easy trap to fall into and is the ruin of many. One of the ways to protect yourself against greed is to practice generosity like Mary. Now, Mary's family must have been very wealthy to be able to afford this perfume. Even if she was given the perfume as a gift, the fact that it wasn't immediately sold means they had serious resources. This perfume was likely imported from India. The wealth of their family does fit, too, what we observe from the number of mourners at Lazarus' tomb or their ability to throw such a huge party to honor their friend Jesus here. But their wealth wasn't hoarded. It it was used wisely, and it was used generously. Now, of course, you don't have to have a lot of money to be greedy. You can be poor and greedy. Or you can be wealthy and be greedy. It's no different with generosity as we see throughout the scriptures as well. You can be generous with a lot, or like the widow with the two copper coins, you can be generous with a little. Well, at any rate, Judas is motivated here by greed, we see. 
while Mary's generosity is motivated by her overflowing gratitude and love for Jesus. But then when Jesus says, you'll always have the poor among you, he's not saying here that the poor don't matter. The whole Bible is very clear that the poor, that those who are vulnerable in this life, people in need, matter a great deal to God. It's just that this particular act of generosity, this act of worship, was special. Why? Because Mary anointed Jesus as the true king. Just as Samuel anointed David to be king, Mary anointed Jesus. The Messiah, the title of Jesus, means the anointed one. But also, Jesus points forward to the later, what would happen later that week, and he says that this also served to prepare his body for death, for burial. Next week in the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, he's welcomed as a king. But before anyone picks up the palm branches, before anyone cries out, Hosanna in the highest, here he was anointed. Not by a prophet or priest or king. Not by someone who, by those in power, but by his friend. Very likely a, a single woman named Mary from a little town outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. But isn't this fitting for Jesus? He's a different kind of king. And he seems really touched by what she did. And I think that's the key of the odd detail that she wiped his feet with her hair. Even though she made it a bit awkward, Jesus loved it. He was moved by her offering. Only later would Mary be able to understand how her actions honored her friend more than she ever could have known at the time. But this was just an outpouring of her love and devotion for him. Let's finish the story with verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is God's word. Well, our passage ends on a dark note by foreshadowing what Jesus taught later that same week at the Last Supper. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If Lazarus was living proof of Jesus' power and authority over life and death, as we saw two weeks ago, then the authorities decided he must be killed as well. What a shame. But the structure of this story is interesting to me. The reason we went from chapter 11 into chapter 12 is because this beautiful story, this beautiful picture of true and proper worship, of extravagant honor of Mary and her friend Jesus is bracketed 
on both sides by a story of dishonor or disdain from the enemies of Jesus. It's like the light is shining in the world and it is surrounded by darkness. But the darkness has not overcome it. Well, how might we apply this teaching to our lives today? Well, first, I gave you a bonus one. Already we've seen the temptation of greed and the power of generosity. And honestly, for some of us, this may be the only point you need to take away. This may be the lesson that some of us need to meditate on because we live in a consumeristic culture. I was at the mall yesterday, okay? We live in a society of affluence, of stuff. And in many ways, it's amazing. It's so helpful, right? It's good in many ways, but greed in our culture isn't even considered embarrassing, much less sinful. But friends, it can be so destructive. It can be just as destructive to our souls, to our relationships, to our relationship with God as lying or lust or anything else. Beware of the sin of greed. Now second, we can't help with the cast of characters in the story, we can't help but compare and contrast these vastly different responses of people to Jesus in this passage. We have the Jewish people, some of whom believed in Jesus while others alerted the Pharisees. He's over there, right? We have the religious and political leaders who made up the Sanhedrin. We know at least one or two maybe were considered or uh, considering the claims of Jesus, curious about being his disciple. We know at least Nicodemus was among them, but most of whom had resolved to sacrifice Jesus and not as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world that Christians believe that he was, but as a scapegoat to protect their positions, comfortable no doubt, of power. We have Mary who poured out this unimaginably costly gift. Can you imagine giving a friend a gift that expensive as an act of worship and devotion to Jesus, not caring what else anybody, what, what anyone else thought about this? Now, she doesn't get much time in this story, but we also have our dear sister, Martha. And I love Martha. I kind of resonate with Martha. She is faithfully serving. She's making sure dinner is running smoothly. She's getting the food out hot. She's making sure everybody's happy and maybe focused a bit more on doing things for Jesus than on simply being with Jesus. Can anyone else resonate with that kind of thought? But then we have Simon, who doesn't even get any press in this account of this dinner, but he did open his home to serve Jesus and bless others. We have Lazarus reclining at the table, perhaps surprised, no one more surprised that he was there than Lazarus, and he had been restored to life by Jesus. He had been restored to relationship with Jesus. He was reclining at the table with his friend, sharing a meal together. It's a picture of the kingdom. Finally, we have Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the thief. So who do you resonate with in this story? Who might you learn from? I think if you pick Jesus, you probably got the answer wrong. Okay? <laughs> who else do you resonate with in this story? All right? There's only one true king. 
But one of the ways that we can apply the scriptures to our lives is by learning from both the good and the bad of the men and women in the scriptures. Now maybe you could look back and think back through your life and see signs of God's power and his faithful presence in your life. And and you could look to those signs like some of the Jewish people did and use those to strengthen your faith. Or maybe you could use your time and energy and talents to serve Jesus like Martha. Or open your home to others like Simon. Or, or maybe you need to focus a little bit more on just being with Jesus like Lazarus or perhaps like Mary. Or maybe you need to learn to open up your heart and your hands and be a little more free and a little more generous in your worship of Jesus like Mary. Honestly, I have things that I need to learn from all of these characters and their interactions with Jesus. Well, third and finally, what does this story teach us about what worship is? We see here that worship is so much more than a church service or singing worship music together, although both of those things are very good. Listen, God's people have always been devoted to regularly gathering, singing songs of praise, hearing the scriptures read and taught, praying, giving, and serving one another so that the body of Christ may be built up together in love. But true and proper worship can and should expand. to include all of life if it brings honor to God. So when you think about worship, focus on who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do in Christ. But when you think about worship, I hope you'll remember Mary too. Remember the beautiful gift that she gave Jesus. Remember that she didn't care what anyone else thought. Remember how much Jesus appreciated it, even though it was a little weird. She had an audience of one. Now as we close, there are several traditional accounts of what happened to Mary of Bethany after this. One account says that she went with Martha and Lazarus to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Uh, because of persecution there in Jerusalem. And there's maybe some foreshadowing of that here. And on the island of Cyprus, Lazarus became eventually a bishop of the early church. Another uh, account has Mary joining the Apostle John, the author of this gospel, in Ephesus, where she eventually died. A third has her and her siblings planting a church in the south of France, where there's still a church that bears Martha's name to this day. Or perhaps Lazarus stayed in Cyprus, Mary stayed in Ephesus, and Martha made it to France. I can't wait to find out one day. The point is, is that these are faithful brothers and sisters. And we will have to ask them one day how it all worked out. But today, may we follow their example. Not a perfect example, but a good one and recognize and honor Jesus 
as our Messiah, as our King, who lived and died and rose again so that we might be not only forgiven for our sins, but receive life everlasting by faith in Him, to receive and seat at the table so that we may recline and have dinner with Him. And may all of our lives be offered as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. May we offer our lives as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, one whose aroma fills the house. Let's pray. Our Father, you are so good. There's nothing that we possess that we could give to you that would equal what you have done for us in Jesus. So God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our lives to you and that we would be able to reflect in greater and greater degrees of glory who you are back to you. That our lives would become an offering of praise that all of our lives, all of our time, all the resources that we have, every second of our days would be given to honor you. Lord, please forgive us when we get distracted, when we seek after other things, when we get distracted by the, the worries of life, when we get discouraged and we lose our focus on you. Lord, would you forgive us for those things and would you lift our eyes back up to you so that we too might be able to see you for who you are and respond in the appropriate ways of pouring out our lives for you. Help us to do this by your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand.